Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. And welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And I have a special guest this week, Joe Owen, who I invited onto the podcast when I had had the pleasure of reviewing his most recent book called Smart Work, which I found really thought provoking. Um, so, Joe, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to review your book. We're going to dig into it a little bit, but I didn't realize at the time how prolific an author you are. So, would you like to give yourself a little bit of an introduction for our listeners? So uh, I, I've had the classic corporate career, started my career in uh, brand management at Procter & Gamble, best nappy salesman in Birmingham, put, and I put the blue speckle in Daz. <laughs> Arguably, my career has been downhill ever since then. You put the blue speckle in Daz, did you? I put, yeah, I put the blue speckle in Daz. So there, there you are. There, I, I what does the blue speckle do? Is it just the for- blue speckle astonishingly does actually do something. It does. It makes your whites whiter. It, it, just because of the, a, a lighting effect. So it, it really does do something. It's not it does it like a, a reflection. Sort of gimmick, I wonder if I can get Daz to sponsor this episode. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <There> <laughs> <you> <laughs> no, sorry, I detoured you uh, there. Carry on. Uh, anyway, I, I was, then became head of research for the STP. I know I was head of research because as the only researcher left after the 1983 general election debacle, uh, went off to business school, joined a consulting firm, built their business in Japan, came back to the UK, got sued for $12 billion when a billion was worth something, um, joined Accenture, where Addison got, Consulting, Got sued for $12 billion personally, or as part of your... Well, as a partner, it is personal. Ah, right. As a partner, it's personal. Okay? And, and, and I, I mean, take it you, re- you resolved that because... We, we resolved it. Yeah, otherwise I'd be selling you the biggest you know, so it's like, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay. Um, but that, that was quite exciting. Um, and then I decided, and, and then I started back, and, and then I decided to do something more interesting, uh, which landed up being starting teach first, which was start. I started somewhat by accident, but somewhat deliberately. That then led on to a bunch of other NGOs that I've started as well, sort of which flowed from that in education and, and beyond. One of which is re- very relevant today. It's Stir Education, where we're uh, dealing with the challenge of 600, the UN challenge, SDG4, of 600 million kids in school, but not learning. And everyone says, well, the teachers are the problem. We're saying, no, no, the teachers aren't the problem. They are the solution. The challenge is they're completely demotivated and alienated. So actually, if you can re-engage the teachers, you're going to succeed. And the, what we learned from that, the model that we learned from that, which we call the RAMP model, of engagement oh, you have that in the book. happens okay. ha- happens to fit incredibly well with what we've been seeing 
in in lockdown and with the challenges of of working from home and remote working. So so yeah, there has actually been crossover between this the NGO work and the writing work. Um, obviously, setting up the charities, I make no money. So on the side, I have to make money, and I do that by writing books and doing stuff like that, which I love instantly. Brilliant. Right. So um, Teach First, just tell me a bit about what Teach First is, because you refer to it in the book. What's okay, so so Teach First gets uh, great graduates to teach in the most challenging schools in the country, in England. Um, and it is now the largest graduate recruiter in the UK. So it's a little bit surprising yeah, that it started from nothing. It actually started from me sort of kicking my heels in San Francisco, listening to a KFOG, which plays good music, you know, Doors and Dire Straits, so that dates me. Um, and they interrupted the music to do a little sort of human interest interview about a program, a project, which got great, teach, great graduates to teach in the inner city in San Francisco. I rang the radio programs at KFOG and said, give me the name of the project, Teach for America. I rang Teach for America and said, put me through to Wendy Kopp, the CEO. Because I've got a fruity British accent, I got straight through. The accent works. And Wendy said, well, she couldn't help because she was very busy. But McKinsey had been looking at what to do about uh, education in London. So I rang McKinsey and said, look, I should talk to you. And they said, oh, fine, come in. And they said they're doing a study. And I said, I know you're doing a study. And I've got the answer. You know, bring, essentially, Teach for America over here. And uh, to cut a long story short, that is what, what happened. I mean, with an awful lot of things that happened in between, as you can imagine. And I think the, the, the message from that story is that opportunity is in, in front of us the whole time. We, you don't have to be a genius entrepreneur coming up with brilliant new ideas. The ideas are out there. If only we, we care to grab them as they pass, um, because I knew nothing about education at all. Um, but you know, the, the, the opportunity was there. And, and once I got that going, that, that led to other opportunities as well. So I've landed up setting up eight NGOs and, and uh, STIR is the uh, latest one. Which is so what does STIR do? So STIR is the one which is addressing the UN challenge of the 600 million kids in school, but not learning. And we're doing it by essentially not just getting the teachers re-engaged and re-motivated, but getting all the officials and the whole system re-engaged and re-motivated because there is a real challenge there of all the teachers just being ground down in a rather depressing way um, yeah. and it doesn't help and, and then you have all these wonderful literacy and numeracy programs which are very clever and they spend hundreds of millions of pounds on them and they fail and it's not surprising because they're, they're being implemented through people who aren't interested and aren't motivated so number one, you've got to engage people. It's, it's, it's employee engagement, right? All over, it, it all is over again. Employee engagement on a massive, mm. massive scale. And this is what's interesting, because if you look at it, we, we expect managers to motivate their teams. And it's like, stop. That is the wrong expectation and the wrong question. The job of the manager is not to be like David Brent and stand on your desk on a Monday morning and make a motivating speech to your team. That doesn't work. You cannot tell people to be happy, motivated, positive, or inspirational. These things come from within. So instead of telling managers to be motivational, all you can do is put in place, get managers to put in place the conditions 
where the team will rediscover their intrinsic motivation because professionals are intrinsically motivated. And if you as a manager can create the conditions where, where the, your professionals will rediscover their intrinsic motivation, you have done a fantastic job. And that's a much easier ask of managers. You're not asking them to be motivational, inspirational. You're asking them to put in the systemic conditions when teams will feel motivated. And that's the ramp model that I refer to. The, the four elements are yeah, relationships, supportive relationships, supportive, both vertically and horizontally. So it's not command and control. So, so yeah, this is a mindset shift for a lot of managers. Mm-hmm. Autonomy, A for autonomy, uh, which goes hand in hand have autonomy with accountability. We can talk about that more. M for mastery uh, and growth, because it's very difficult to be motivated if you don't have the skills for today's job and you're not growing the skills for tomorrow's role that you hope to have. Then finally, P for purpose. And purpose isn't about getting out of bed to increase earnings per share for some institutional shareholder that you've never heard of. It is deeply personal. And this is the bit where you do need to have a little bit of magic to figure out how do you create that sense of purpose. And again, with with good job crafting, you can do that. And we can talk about that more later. Mm. But if you think about those four elements, if you put those four elements in place, support for relationships, autonomy, mastery and purpose. If a professional isn't motivated under those circumstances, yeah, no man making speeches or, or putting in table tennis tables or having funky lunches available or whatever. That that isn't going to motivate them. Okay. But if you put them in, most of your professionals will feel motivated without resort to all of those gimmicks, and you'll have a high performing team. And as it happens, those are the four elements that you also need in remote working, mm. supportive relationships, autonomy, mastery. And purposed. So, sorry, so, that's a long speech, but no. But, but uh, what's what's interesting? Uh, I think people might have thought, where should you go in terms of this interview? We're talking about teaching, and suddenly <laughs> right back onto employee engagement and right into the whole. Uh, yeah, the crux of the book is talking about the um, the ramp piece. Um, one question that I was just wondering about, Joe, and and I don't know how easy an answer there is here. Um, so, in the same way that you can see, this is the challenge for the UN. Uh, the, the teachers there or many organizations in fact I was thinking the next challenge is um the NHS um stuff could do with a bit yes. of this um then uh, even though they've probably got quite a few things in in there it's, it's how do you what's missing I suppose so I suppose my my question is um as a line manager I can see to a certain extent how you'd be able to do those things in fact, I can think, I think I can see, yeah, so relationships is about rapport building, accountability, clear goals and feedback and, and you know, that sort of thing. And, and um, uh, supporting people there. Mastery is about supporting people to learn and grow. These do link with things and engagement. Um, yep. I'm just trying to think uh, if of our audience that are HR professionals, if you're trying to create a uh, and management culture or leadership culture that does more of this. So you're one step removed as per our audience. Have you any tips for how you can enable that kind of a ramp culture, if you like? Well, uh, I mean, yes, absolutely. Because that is what we are doing at scale. 
with governments in, in India and, and across Africa. So we have to systematize this whole thing so that the, the governments put this into their systems. And, and there are a bunch of things you, you, you can do about that. What, one is just some training around ramps so that people get that, so that there's a new language and new way of thinking about motivation and not simply saying, oh, is this manager motivational? Yes, well done. And this one isn't. I mean, that's completely random and useless. Think of it, not in terms of individuals, but think of it as how do we build a system with four consistent pillars that we can apply everywhere? Okay, so, so, automatic, so right away, you've changed the nature of discussion. Most HR professionals are smart enough they can actually figure out the solutions around you know, supportive relationships and everything else. So then you embed it into the rhythms and routines. So for instance, one of the things we do with the teachers, which you can replicate uh, uh, yourself as well, is we, we create learning cycles, peer group-based learning cycles, where they take a teaching challenge, or it could be a management challenge, whatever it is. And as a group of peers, they say, well, yeah, let's discuss this challenge because it's a really difficult one. How, how do we actually want to improve our practice? And of course, you may then refer to some theory and all that, but you then work out, well, what's going to work for us in our context? And then you go away and try it, and then you come back in, you know, a, a month later and you review, how do we do, how do we improve it? And you go on to the next challenge and you kind of embed that in the rhythms and routines. So right away, you've linked both the mastery and growth with very supportive relationships. Oh, and actually quite a lot of autonomy because you're not telling people, oh, this is what you must do to be motivational, supportive, or to give performance feedback or whatever. You're saying, look, yeah, there are some frameworks you may want to think about, but you come up with the solutions that work for you in your context. So, because always people prefer the discovered solution over the revealed solution. Mm -hmm. So my revealed solution may be you know, theoretically the best, but actually if I want it to be a solution which people really own and believe in and will make work, you've got to let them discover it. And their discovered solution may be only 80% perfect, but they're really going to make it work. And I'd much rather have an 80% effective solution that you know, they really make work than a 100% solution that they sort of implement 20%, which is kind of just useless. So, so I think you know, without too much effort, if you change the nature of dis the discourse around motivation engagement from, you know, who's motivational and who isn't, to how do we create systemically the conditions for motivation, thinking of the RAMP model, then I, I think you're already a long way to success. And smart HR professionals can work this out, mm. I'm sure. And so, so, yes, and I guess you can make, see these links with things like, for example, coaching culture. So you want people to discover yep. a solution is about that accountability now, one of the and, and um, again, that's a classic example of the supportive relationship. So, yeah, you know, th thinking of the them, manager no mm -hmm. longer being, you know, I'm here to tell you what to do, uh, and I, you know, I'm the brain on me, the bra I'm the brain on sticks, and you know, job is to get the idea out of my head into your hands. It's like, no, I'm not going to provide the solutions. I will help you discover the solutions that work for you. I'm going to be your coach. Fundamentally Actually, different relationship. It is, isn't it? And actually, I was thinking thinking about it, looking at the ramp. Actually, coaching works all along 
all four of those aspects yes, because um but in a different way with a different purpose so whether it's about you know building rapport whether it's about clarity and goals whether it's about coaching people to develop or about making sure that people are in line with their values and purpose um and, and still see yeah. meaning in what they're doing you can see how those would be the most important skills to have as a manager there and 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 the the pandemic i think has possibly been the best thing to happen to management and leadership in 200 years that's surprising for me to say that because i'm i'm a natural born pessimist but on this i'm absolutely uh, optimistic and positive um because what one of the great changes that it has accelerated it hasn't instituted but it's accelerated the change away from command and control towards autonomy and accountability because what we've discovered is that the office um, is a kind of paradise for control freaks because you can uh, interfere with your team, sorry, help your team uh, at will by just strolling across the floor whenever you want and interrupting them. But when, when you can't even see or hear your team, perhaps for 24 hours, you have shock horror to trust that they are doing the right thing while you're not looking over their shoulder. And, and that is a complete sea change. And it's one that, that has been a long time brewing because professionals do not like being micromanaged anyway, even if they are in the office. And the move to working from home has simply uh, made that shift from being a nice to have to being a must have because you, you, you simply can't. I mean, in, unless you're into the world of, of uh, keyboard loggers and all that kind of stuff, mm. which is a nightmare. You, you can't micromanage people uh, when they're remote. So, so yeah, th this has been a shift towards 21st century skills in that we're having to learn a new set of skills, these skills around trust, influence, coaching, and support, as opposed to command and control. We're also finding that the office was, was not just a paradise for control freaks, it was actually also very forgiving a very mediocre management. Um, if you made a mistake in the office, it was very obvious very quickly and you could rectify it more or less on the spot before it sort of went too bad. Um, working remotely, it's much harder to execute the basic routines, much easier to make a mistake. And it's much harder to pick up and discover that you've made a mistake in real time. So mistakes become a lot more costly so, and, and everything is harder. I mean, if, even if we go back to motivation, look, the first person to discover how to motivate people by email will make a fortune, <laughs> but it's a fortune which is unlikely to be made, right? Because it just doesn't work. Uh, even goal setting, we've discovered, is much harder remotely, and we can come back to that. I mean, every, every, communication is harder. Everything is harder remotely. And that is good news because what, what it is doing is it's forcing managers to raise their game on all those basic routines. Um, and, and this echoes a theme that comes out of one of my previous books on global teams, which I very imaginatively called global teams. Where, yeah, where yeah, one of the big findings was yeah, everything is harder on a global team. Everything is harder. So if you're going to manage, manage a global team, you can manage any team. Yeah. And the same is tr true of when you've got a remote or hybrid team. If you've got a remote or hybrid team, the the disciplines are harder to execute, the skills level is higher, and that makes you a better manager. So two great changes. The skills levels have to be higher, and we have to learn a new set of skills, you know, the trust, influence, persuasion, and support as opposed to command and control. 
So I think this is a huge kind of sea change for management, and we're entering a far better future. The challenge is that we don't know what that future is yet. So the, yeah, we all knew what the old rule book was in, in, uh, in the office. Now, the rules may have been different in every different office, but everyone knew what the rules were, okay? Uh, the informal rules, not, not the employee Official manual rules. and procedures. It's the rules of survival and success, right? Even little things like when do we turn up and when do we not turn up? Yeah, people can't know that. Working remotely, people don't even know, well, when do I turn up? What actually are the working hours? So we're into a new world. The old rule book has been ripped up. The new rule book is still being written. Isn't that a brilliant time to be a manager? Isn't that fantastic? We're well, it is if you if you like that game. idea, right? If, if you like to create <laughs> yeah. your own destiny, it is if you are somebody so, uh, who's not threatened by the lack of Well, ability. and some people will be freaked out by it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, as with all transitions, the, the best managers will, will, will make it, and there will be some that do not make it. And, and again, I've worked with quite a few organizations on this, and they've said there has been a, a, a bit of a you know, sorting of the sheep and the goats. Uh, I never know which is which. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which but, the chaff is easier, I think. Yeah. Um, but, it something like that. Yeah, yeah I don't, <laughs> we know what you mean. So, so I, I mean, I agree. We've had the same experience because I would say we've trained close to certainly 500, maybe close to 1,000 managers over the last couple of years because all of a sudden I think managers felt exposed and not necessarily their fault because we know UK particularly, we're particularly poor at investing in management skills. So loads of people have yep. been line managers with no development and no role yep. modelling. So little surprise that they didn't really, they were just kind of managing by presenteeism. But yep. that takes me on to the point that really resonated with me most powerfully in your book um, and there are lots of things, but this particular point, it's, it may seem obvious, but I, I just thought, oh, that's so true. And it's one of the things that I wonder if there's a, also a gap, um, not just in our managers, if we park our managers who perhaps really had to be, go through this intense growth curve, um, it's about individuals, the, the, you know, the individual contributor. If they don't, you, you talk about autonomy, basically, if people autonomy is is a skill you can give people autonomy but that doesn't mean they're ready to take it um it reminds me of sort of the seven habits Stephen Covey's thing about responsibility being able to take responsibility yeah. you have to be quite courageous and it's quite tricky and I was just interested in that whole point because you know how do we help people be ready okay to be autonomous so th there is a dark side to autonomy which I think we've seen in, in the uh, pandemic, which which is that autonomy can lead to stress and burnout, yeah. particularly for professionals, because there are two characteristics of professionals which are going to lead to stress and burnout. One is uh, professionals want to do a good job, which is great. And the second is that professional work is ambiguous. It's not like, you know, how many widgets have you produced and have you produced them to the right quality? If you ask a professional to write a report, the report could be one page long, it could be a hundred pages long. It doesn't matter how long it is, it's actually never complete because there is always another fact you could check and another opinion you could canvas. So if you're in a professional faced with an ambiguous task, as simple as writing a, a report, you want to do a good job, which means you're just going to go on and on because 
that, that, that's your mindset, now, in, though, Joe. I mean, the I office, don't... <laughs> in, in the office, you've got to kind of, you can constantly be checking with your, you know, with your boss and your yeah. peers saying, yeah, does this look right? Is this right? What do you really want? Did it, et cetera. When you're working remotely, you just go on. Well, no, I, I don't agree with some that. Right? Let do. me challenge that. Some, some people. people do. I'll give you that because, and I would say that may be about people who um, don't have the confidence to say how long yes. do you want the report money, how many pages. They may be perfectionists. Some people yep. are, are just want, you know, they don't know where. where. So I see it that I, I, we are on the same page, really, because in terms of autonomy, I think it's challenging um, for people. And not everybody has that natural trait. And, and I completely see how we're hearing lots of examples of people reaching um, burnout because they don't know how to self-manage. They don't know how to set their own yeah. parameters, I think, well, it is, it, is what I yeah, see. So the challenge is boundaries. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, how long is the report and ambiguous? Yeah, ambiguous about work is about not having boundaries on what the work is. And also the working simple things like how long is the working day? Yeah, the problem is that when you work from home, you never leave work. So you have to create boundaries as well at the beginning and the end of the day. And it's, you, you can't do that yourself. You need to do that with the rest of the team because... If you, you can set your own boundaries, but if the rest of the team and your boss is saying, well, actually, you know, I need to be able to talk to you at nine o'clock in the evening. Well, you know, you've got a problem. OK, so, um, you know, part of the solution is to have clear boundaries, both personally as an, and as a team. The only way you can do it as a team is to essentially create a team charter. When you're in the office, you don't need to create a team charter because kind of you know do. what you, yeah. you know what you do okay but working from home you don't know all the basic things mm -hmm. so you know, i've seen some team some teams have come up with a slightly bizarre working day where the core hours are 10 to 3 that's when you're available for zoom and everything else uh but then uh the the personal working time you know, has a high concentration time when you're not meant to be interrupted it's like um seven till nine and then uh like eight till ten in the evening uh, making those up slightly and you go well that's completely bizarre until you realize that actually that that is perfect for people with caring family uh, with, with caring, caring responsibilities. responsibilities okay so, so that's flexible but, but, allowing people to work around it but they're setting so, their own yeah but but it only works if the whole team says yes that's what we're going to do all right so, so, so this way you kind of need to have the little team team charter, and and I'd simply urge every team to sit down together and create that team charter about how they want to work and resolve all those questions that every team has about how do you, how do you actually want to work. It's about um, talking, isn't it? It is about communicating about different people's yeah. wants because yeah. if you are able to communicate um, with with openness and and sort of respect for each other to recognise that actually one person's you know, it's, it's better wants to work in the evening, that suits them great. If the other person wants to work first thing in the morning and do their fitness class in the evening or vice versa. Um, and that gives them balance and everyone understands those boundaries, then that's a really good thing. The interesting thing I think about this is where, again, it comes back from our old school mindset is the fact that the manager can't control it. And then somehow if you're not working nine till five, there's this fear that you're swinging the lead that you're not working or in some yeah. way um yet the reality is it seems that some people are going too far the other way um and they're working too long and not having um well that, you know, that, 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 that's the whole lack of boundaries stuff mm. ambiguous work and also 
actually the fear that because you're not in the office, people can't see you working. So they want to kind of over-deliver to over-prove that they are actually being, being useful. Um, so, so again, that th this is where you need to deal with the curse for autonomy, um, because it is autonomy that autonomy without boundaries and clarity leads to this. And, and one way of dealing with is clear boundaries we've talked about. The other way, if, if you're going to double down on autonomy, which pandemic forces you to, then you have to double down on accountability. And most professionals actually kind of feel slightly ambiguous about accountability. They know it's important, but they don't really like being judged because it's a bit parent-child relationship, isn't it? You know, oh, you did a good job, pat on the head. No, no, you, you, know, sit on, you did a bad job, sit on the naughty step. And it's like, no, we don't really like that as professionals. Um, but actually, if you convert that away from saying, well, accountability is an unfortunate use of language. If you say, actually, this is about getting clarity. This is about getting real goal clarity about exactly what is it that you're meant to achieve here. So we go back to the example of the report where you quite rightly pulled up and said, well, hang on, you know, you just make sure you agree about exactly what the report is meant to be. How long is it meant to be? Who's it for? What do they expect? What do they really want out of it? You know, what's really important? What are the options? How else can we do it? Yeah. If you get real, real clarity, then actually that is amazingly liberating because you've now contained the beast of autonomy and from the manager's point of view you've, you've now got real accountability because there is no doubt about what is required okay so so bizarrely this accountability gig that professionals feel a little bit uncertain about sometimes yeah and because about is actually proper accountability with total goal clarity is the professional's friend because that's what helps you uh, get through your working day in a much more effective way. So you, one of the things everyone can do is double down on that. Yeah, and then you're autonomous as to how you write it or when you write it yeah. or, or yeah, what you put in it, but yeah. um, you, you, it's it's got the right sort of structure around it. Yeah, Absolutely. so I, I think that's a powerful. I think that's powerful in that I don't think everybody knows how to do that yet, and I think there's a development area for people, you know, new people into the workplace. It's just it's, I feel that there's something well, there that um, people well, need I, to develop. again. We, I said everything is harder on a remote team. Mm. I mentioned goal setting. So this is a classic example. In the office, it's very easy to set a goal. You say, well, could you write the report? Uh, fine. Okay. And then actually what happens is there's a kind of constant dialogue in the office about, oh, did you really want this? How about this? Have you thought about that? Shall we die? And you know, you're constantly sort of massaging it into the right report. Okay. And it's a kind of pro you discover it's, it's not just something you dictate. It's a process of discovery. That process of discovery can't happen remotely because you can't have that constant dialogue. So now you have to be much more purposeful and deliberate about making sure that you don't just communicate the what, which is kind of really easy and trivial. Mm. You have to communicate the why and the context. You know, who wants this? Why do they want this? You know, what's really wanted? What are the options? How do we do this? Da, da, da. All those questions have to come out. They have to be resolved. And they're not going to take one conversation. They're going to take several. So as a manager, you have to now sort of, in all these skills, be more purposeful and more deliberate. Um, and that's a huge challenge for, for, for all managers. Uh, and it's a huge challenge for all HR professionals because now 
yeah, we talk about the learning organization, boy, yeah, people are really going to have to start learning now because it's, it's a massive step up in, in skills that Yeah, uh, it's about thinking, it's about intent, isn't it? All the way you've got to really yeah. think about what you're trying to achieve rather yeah. than just do. Yeah, so the do. office is fine for ad hoc, informal and frankly, slightly amateurish management. Mm. Remote and hybrid is much less forgiving. Mm. And that's good. That's all to the good. If it makes managers be far more intentional, far more purposeful and deliberate in everything they do, that has to be a good thing. Because those, once you learn those disciplines remotely, you can start applying them in the office and you're just going to be a better manager. So, so you know, I, th- this is an opportunity we need to grab with both hands to sort of really, really make the most of it. Make the most of it. And it's not Absolutely. just upgrade our skills but learn the new 21st century skills of trust and influence and all that kind of good stuff as opposed to command and control. So it's a different world. And and, and as a result, we will all end up in better quality of life and have lower stress and burnout if we are more intentional about it. It seems like if you work a bit harder, a bit more intentionally, then actually we'll get better outcomes for us and for our people. Absolutely. One other thing that I thought was really um, relevant, and again, these are two things that have resonated with, I think, from the customers I've talked to, particularly the downside, one of the potential downsides of of the um, virtual setup. And one of those also, you talk in your book about networks of influence, because, of course, you don't have the incidental chat in the corridor, do you? You've got to be more intentional about building your um your advocates and, and relationships you, you know if you're not on a virtual project with the key people how do you manage your visibility because this this um it could be more difficult for people in terms of their career what thoughts have you got on that topic because i know you wrote about it quite a bit in the so book. yeah so, so there's been a great dividing line here um between the kind of covid aristocracy and the covid proletariat the the, the covid aristocracy have actually done very well during the pandemic um you know there's the people who have the long commutes but have a nice house and they can have very happy working from home but critically they're probably well established at work and they yeah. have those networks of trust already. and influence already yeah. so when working remotely they knew who to who to chat mm-hmm. who to talk to they could pick up the phone and it, it, it just happened now turn that around the covid proletariat okay probably working in a flat share from the end of the bed nightmare probably not enjoying their flatmates, et cetera. Stuck in their room, yeah. Stuck in their room and probably new either to the world of work or to the company. And they don't have those networks of trust and influence. They don't know who to call. And even if they do call them, it's like, who are you? What do you do? Why why am I talking to you? Yeah, It's a nightmare for them. It's an absolute nightmare for them. So, Because the only way you can get things done in an organization now is through those personal networks of influence and trust. So, of course, the, those younger people um, are desperate to get back into the office, build that social capital. They want the mentoring to find out how things want to happen. But, of course, all the aristocrats, they don't want to come into the office because they don't need to. But I'll actually, they, yeah. Yeah, they're very comfortable. But actually, yeah. they are critical to help the new generation build those networks, understand the culture, understand how things work, and to mentor them on all, all, all the skills and all that sort of stuff. Now, you know, um, none of that was obvious when we were all working in the office. It's mm. only when you go remote, you suddenly go, oh, that's what's actually going on. That's why the office matters. So yeah. um, again, 
when people go back to the office, it has to be done in an intentional way. It can't be a free-for-all. You've got to make sure the right people are there at the right time because if it's a free-for-all, then uh, it, it's going to be the wrong people miss, the wrong time. It? It's all hit and miss. So, yeah, it, a free-for-all tips? sounds democratic, but don't don't be democratic. Make are there any tips that you've got for, for your proletariats who haven't got the network of influence yet? And if you can't necessarily do it in the office, are there any things that they can do or as an organisation that you could do to help people build networks of influence virtually? Yeah, look, it, well, OK, look, yes, there are things you can do, but the overwhelming response, and again, this was the same one I was doing to work on global teams at one point the solution on how to make a global team work seemed to be um, get everyone to a castle in Kent and make them drunk, okay? And then I realized that wouldn't actually work in the Middle East. So we had to come up with this more sophisticated solution. And I, But actually the solution is, it doesn't matter if you're global or remote or anything else, at some point you've got to get the team together in person. It doesn't have to be in, together all the time, but just get people together because it is transformational. Um, one little story to illustrate this. Uh, I was speaking with a senior executive of a global search firm, and she'd come across to Paris, flown across to Paris, uh, and was then going on to London, but couldn't fly there because of the French air traffic controller strike, plus a change. Okay? So she had to do something very un-American, and she had to take the train from Gare du Nord to uh, St. Pancras. And she got on with a few of her European colleagues she didn't really know or trust or like. And she said it was like a miracle. Because by the time we, we didn't know, like, or trust each other when we got on Gardenor, by the time we got off at St. Pancras, we all knew each other, trusted each other. The quality of our communications went up, our cooperation went up, and it was all because of that personal contact. So it does, I mean, it doesn't matter how high tech you are, how remote you are, how global you are, at some point, get together. Okay. So that's the speech over on that. What can you do when you're not together? Yeah. There are all sorts of sort of virtual gigs and events you can do, and that's fine. You know, and virtual dinners, virtual drinks, virtual parties, all that. Um, some work, some make your skin crawl, but you know, do them anyway. It's better better than nothing. Um, but if you want to, if if you're an individual and you want to build those networks of credibility. Um, there are a few, few hints. One is just hustle and make yourself useful to important sounding people. Hustle. Just volunteer to do stuff. That's one thing. Yeah. Second thing is build trust very explicitly, deliberately. And here's how you do it. So trust is a function of um, credibility, times alignment, divided by risk. Okay, so yeah, the greater the risk, the more trust required. It's one bit, but let's just talk about the credibility and, and alignment. So the alignment bit is both personal, do I trust you personally, and it's professional, have we got the same goal? Those two things are often best resolved in person, okay, ideally. You, you can help some of the personal alignment by um, curating your Zoom background. Here's a tip. Okay, So um, curate your Zoom background so it's got personal stuff in the background. You can disclose whatever you want in there. And that's going to invite people to say, oh, you know, why have you got a spear in that background? Oh, well, let me tell you about that. Okay, Bang. Sudden, and, and then they'll want to disclose something about themselves. 
you're building that personal rapport, personal alignment. So, you, and and it, by having that personal background, you invite people into your home, and it's much more personal. Actually, okay? that did happen a bit, didn't it, with people, kids coming in and yes. pets and things like that. Yeah. Well, you need to be slightly careful on kids and pets. So it's like you want it, you want it to be curated, not random and chaotic. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, and at the start, you know, kids and pets, fine. By the end, it's like, get yourself organized, I think. Yeah. So just, there's a sort of like, but, but, you know, curate your background so that people ask about it and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So it opens up a human person, a sort of a real yeah. conversation, a personal conversation. Exactly. So that's one thing you can do. But then let's talk about the credibility bit. So if you want to maintain credibility, it's much better to have a difficult conversation about expectations before the event rather than have an impossible conversation about outcomes after the event. And professionals are often weak at that because they, they like to please. They don't like having difficult conversations. But it's just like the accountability conversation, uh, conversation we had earlier. Clear goals, clear accountability, clear expectations is much better for everyone concerned so it's really about us being um again intentional and planned and not leaving things down to chance and yeah. having a conversation up front um prevents a whole lot of pain down the line but it means we have to get into good habits right and, and create these new ways of working we can't just leave things to chance yeah. and rock up like I, we I, in the office and rock up and expect it to work out I think if there is a constant theme throughout this book, it is about managers having to be much more purposeful and deliberate and intentional about everything they do. You know, the office was very good for mediocre management, ad hoc management, control freak management. All of that goes out of the window when you're working uh, remotely and a good thing too. So I think we are entering a far better world for management uh, the best will make it and will thrive. Not all managers will make it. And that's something that you know, HR professionals, as well as individuals, are going to have to grapple with. And actually, if you want to grapple with it, I want a few tips. And then I do recommend your book, Smart Work, Joe. And I haven't read your previous ones. I have to go and look at some of the others. But I know you've got, I think it's three other books, haven't you, on leadership and various relevant topics? 18. But, uh, oh, you're 18 welcome, to my all, welcome to my all. Welcome to my all. I only read you right before about them on LinkedIn. I thought you said 18 years. My word, prolific. Uh, yeah, okay, well, that could keep me out of mischief. So, if, if Joe, if people want to get hold of you to find out the names yeah. of all your 18 books, where would they get hold of you? Uh, the best is to get hold of me at show at ilead.guru, a very modest email. I like it. <laughs> Joe at ilead.guru. Brilliant. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. I'm hoping that to our listeners, they won't notice a few technical hitches where we went completely dead for 10 minutes in the middle of this interview um, as I had a super power cut. Um, and hopefully it, it hasn't detracted from um, what's well, been a really fascinating conversation, Joe. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, getting to know you in, in the way you've been thinking. It's been really, really interesting. So much appreciate your time today. Right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. 
Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.